0: Inside Books with Brida Brown.
1: Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Brida Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIre, where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Alan Shatter, the former Thinnegale politician who served as a TD for the Dublin South constituency for 30 years, culminating in his role as Minister for Justice, Equality and Defence. In May 2014, Alan Shatter was pressurised to resign after he was wrongly accused of covering up espionage and corruption, ignoring concerns of whistleblowers, spying on political opponents and of undermining the administration of justice. Damaged by false narratives and political manoeuvring by the then Taoiseach Enda Kenny, lost his door seat in 2016. He has now written a book called Frenzy and Betrayal, The Anatomy of a Political Assassination, which offers a unique insight into the turbulent weeks and months before his abrupt departure from office in 2014. Now, Alan, we'll chat more about Frenzy and Betrayal later, but some of the listeners may not realise that this isn't your first book. When you were a solicitor in the 70s and 80s, you wrote a number of academic books.
0: I did. Well, even before that, um, I I wrote a book called Family Planning Irish Style, which was a satirical send-up of... Charlie Hoy's legislation uh, which was designed to provide a so-called Irish solution to an Irish problem dealing with the contraceptive issue. Um, I was asked at that stage I was a young lawyer had been involved in the Free Legal Advice Centres I I was asked by the Irish Times having um, uh, published an amount of uh, writings on Irish family law to do a serious analysis of Hawhi's um, Bill, uh, I found that was completely and utterly impossible. And what was to be a, a, a relatively brief Irish Times article uh, became a, a short um, satirical book on that particular piece of legislation with uh, cartoons written by, uh, drawn by a very good friend of mine, Chaim Factor. And uh, much to my shock, we we, we, were, we self-published. I had no clue what to do with it or who to go with to with it. Um, and uh, it sold 3,000 copies within 10 days of being published wow. with hit number one in the bestsellers list. And the Irish Times, who never got the article they asked me for, then reproduced <laughs> some of Chaim's cartoons. So, so that was sort of a fun thing.
1: And how was it perceived by the public?
0: Um, It was, went down very well, yeah. We, we launched it. There was a restaurant, um, Called the Old Dublin Restaurant that That's no right. longer exists.
1: It was on Francis Street, and wasn't it?
0: Francis Street. Uh, it was owned by a friend of mine, and uh, Mary Robinson was a young senator at the time. Mary had been my lecturer uh, in uh, Trinity College. Mary launched the book, and we um, put a lot of the cartoon drawings up around the wall of the restaurant, and uh, some of them sold. The, the, the originals went up, and some of them sold to. Uh, the great delight of uh, both myself and Chaim Factor.
1: They could be worth a small fortune now. Oh, if they're still
0: there somewhere. Yeah, I've still got a copy of Family Planning Irish style at home. It's sort of fun.
1: And then the academic books that you wrote then, that was about Irish family law.
0: Yeah, I when I was going through college, firstly, um, initially family law wasn't even a topic and then it was an optional topic and two-thirds of the course you were lectured at about English law and then there was a a one-third of the course was Irish law and I was working in the free legal advice centres as a student in those days and uh, about 80 to 90 percent of what I was doing was advising people about family problems, most frequently abandoned or deserted or battered wives uh, who weren't being properly supported, who were under continuing threat uh, from their Uh, from their partners or there were major custody disputes and really family law was self-taught before I even got to a point in Trinity where I could take the optional course. So at an early stage I decided there was a need for a family law book. It didn't exist in Ireland at that time. There was no, very little writing on Irish family law and uh, it wasn't even a course that young sisters or barristers took to qualify. So uh, at a rather uh, young age, at the age of 25. I was
1: going to say, did it not daunt you?
0: It did, but uh, I'd written a lot of stuff for the Free Legal Advice centers We'd published reports, uh, campaigned for reform. Uh, as a young student, I was engaged with a lot of media and speaking at events. And uh, looking back on it now, it was all a little insane, but it, it was something I assumed I could do. Um, and uh, within about 18 months of graduating from Trinity College, I published the first edition of Family Law in the Republic of Ireland.
1: And how did you get a publisher on board?
0: Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm twisting. I'm um, twisting. I was conscious that I was very young and I was literally, I I qualified as solicitor in 1976 and the book was published in 1977. Um, I went to the Institute of Public Administration, first of all, uh, thinking this is a very worthy book they will be interested in. Of course they will. But uh, my objective with the book wasn't just to describe what the law was, it was to set out the need for major legal and social reform because much of the law was locked into the 1800s and hadn't changed. Uh, So each chapter had a sort of historical introduction, details of what the law was and then the, a, a, a subsection entitled The Need for Reform. Now, much of what I wrote about reform in that and subsequent editions of the book has now become part of Irish family law, sort of set the agenda. But the Institute of Public Administration weren't impressed. The um, uh, In those days, the perception was law books should merely state what the law is and not criticise it. Uh, they gave it to some crusty member of the Bar Library to read who reported back that Shatter's book isn't bad but you need to excise the need for reform pieces because uh, that's not really appropriate Uh, so I, they offered to publish on that basis. I said no. Um, there was a, 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 a then young publisher, Seamus Cashman. Seamus is now a famous poet. Seamus found Wolfhound found Press. Uh, I found Seamus. Right. Um, I, uh, uh, we, we then published the book as a joint venture. Um, I did a very bad thing. For, uh, I'm sure Seamus ha- had question marks around uh, this young chap asking to publish a law book. Um, and then I offered that I I would um, pay for the printing if he did all the distribution and everything else that a publisher needs to do. What I didn't tell him was I didn't have a halfpenny to my name and I've no idea how I'd achieve that. But I did know that there was a considerable interest in family law within the legal profession and no books existed. So we uh, organised through the Law Society that they'd put in this Law Society magazine that goes to every solicitor, a flyer, uh, advertising the book three months before its publication. Now, as I was op- optimistic enough to think we'd get enough advance orders to pay for the printing and it worked Did. miraculously. Right. And. Um, I think it's turned out to be because of the social commentary in it. And at the time, you had a lot of the, what were then newly formed women's organisations like AIM Group and Women's Aid, uh, all campaigning on law reform issues. And because of the profile of FLAC, uh, the book sold extraordinarily well and became uh, the first legal academic work to go near the top of the bestsellers list. I no longer remember did we get to number one or two or three but it was quite unexpected unprecedented and found had to rapidly reprint. And Which is all, great. Yeah, and it turned out to be a successful project but in legal terms it was a very important Uh, piece of legal work because for the first time since the foundation of the state it provided a comprehensive script of the then existing law and details of really where it was deficient and the reforms needed.
1: So after such success then with the academic side of things then you just said here I know I'll turn my (laughs) hand to fiction. (laughs) That's what you did. You published a book called Laura in 1989.
0: I did. At that stage we uh, had gone through uh two editions of the family law book and there was a a third on on the way uh, and um i'd been involved in, in a lot of very uh stressful contentious uh controversies over adoption between uh birth mothers and adopters uh representing uh, uh one or other side when conflict arose usually after a child had been placed for adoption and uh, and um the mother changed her mind and this was a very new area of family law and there was huge issues around concepts of uh, psychological attachment, attachment theory, the impact on the welfare of children for the, bre- uh, for the breaking of bonds. And I decided having uh, appeared in a number of these cases and having written extensively about adoption, the need for reform, uh, that uh, there was a good novel to be written that would uh, tell a good and uh, interesting story, a story that I believed people would be interested in reading about, but would also, it, within that story, give some insights into areas of difficulty and the u- huge emotional impact uh, on both uh, birth mothers and adopters when conflicts arise, and the impact on lawyers and the judge adjudicating on such cases. Uh, so we probably a uh, Pullbag Press published. Laura, I think it was 1989. We we published Laura, and
1: uh, and I mean, you were a TD at the time, were you? I was a
0: TD at the time. So, yeah. how
1: did you? What sort of reaction did you get, or what reaction do you did you expect to get?
0: Well, Laura got got a very positive reaction. Um, Begg did a great job on it. Um, it was an unusual story for uh, for its day. There's been a multitude of such stories and even movies made since, but at the time, it was quite quite unique in the way it portrayed the issues. Uh, the book hit number one for quite some time, the best sellers there, sold over 20,000 copies and it was taken as a as a really uh, worthwhile, interesting story and novel. Uh, it was some many years later when I became Minister for Justice uh, that uh, a couple of passages in it were used to poke fun at me. But at the time, it was well, very well received and I was under um, great pressure to do a new novel further on some other issue. Uh, and between my legal work and my political work and trying to complete yet another edition of the Family Law Book, at that stage, it wasn't practical.
1: Mm-hmm. And then... I suppose then moving on just in your in your writing history um, in addition to Frenzy and Betrayal which is out now which prior to that in September 2017 you had Life is a Funny Business. So this is more about your early life experiences. So why did you decide you wanted to sit down and write some sort of memoir like that?
0: Well that really happened, happened by accident. Really? Um, in January of 2015 after all the uh, e- excitement and the extraordinary events of um, uh, the first half of 2014 when I was Minister for Justice and Defence um, and I was sort of tied up in this extraordinary maelstrom and with an extraordinary range of false allegations being made. Uh, In the time that followed, 2014 into 2015 and 2016, I was uh, embroiled in giving evidence to commissions of investigation. I was involved in two different sets of court proceedings. It was, in fact, impossible to get away from those events. And it was also important in the context of uh, what was coming up that I maintained a very good recollection and memory of the intricacies of what happened so that I could truthfully give evidence with full recollection in commissions of investigation and properly deal with the court proceedings. So I decided that as I was uh, inevitably tied into this for some time and as uh, there was so much... Uh, fake news around on these issues and so many uh, inaccurate narratives so that there was a uh, a public benefit in trying to do a detailed account of what occurred. Uh, it was a personal benefit to me because it it, it facilitated my ensuring that I had a full and proper recollection uh, when I needed to have it of these events. So I started writing that book uh, in early 2015 and then I got to a point uh, within it whereby um, I couldn't take it any further till reports were published, till court judgments were delivered. I also found it quite debilitating uh, writing because it was um, uh, an extraordinary stressful period and uh, really uh, from a personal perspective I'd have been better off uh, moving on and focusing on other aspects of life. Uh, but I was effectively uh, cut into not being able to uh, and I decided when when I'd done about a year's writing on this that for the sake of my own well-being I needed to get away from the subject for a while and uh, I was way on vacation. I sort of thought where did all this start mm. and maybe there's something interesting to write about that just is a total distraction. So that's life uh, is a funny business. Really, it was a, a time out from writing Frenzy and Betrayal, which was only published at, uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, and an opportunity for me to go back and s- explore things that happened during my youth and for me to perhaps get some insight into what drives me. I, I, and did I, it
1: give you that insight? Um,
0: I'm not sure I still know the extent... Uh, Uh, exactly why I'm as driven as I am in the context of dealing with issues and my concern about issues I, I think the insight I got was it clearly derived from the nature of family life in my early years and the type of conversations that took place at home and my father, who was never involved actively in politics, was an armchair politician and always had a great interest in social issues and we discussed these sort of things at the age of five, six and seven.
1: Very Uh, young
0: And so, so I think that and later events in my teenage years impacted on the extent to which I commit to things that I'm really interested in.
1: So the the life is a funny business was nearly a byproduct. It of, was, of the other yeah,
0: book. yeah, and it, it got published when I think it was September 2017. Now, and it really was a byproduct. There's no great connection between the two because I decided that the writing should be up to the date I got elected to the oil and So it finishes in 1981. I uh, There's some chapters in it that are very serious. There's some I think and I hope are amusing and I know I have very nice feedback to that book. Um, the, I enjoyed writing that book and it reconnected me with things. It's amazing how much you think you've forgotten from your childhood. And
1: I was going to ask that, how did you remember or did you talk to family and friends to make sure that your recollection was similar to theirs?
0: Well, I, in that context I was in a strange position because all my family are deceased. Uh, I, I mean, the, the only family that I had ever in Ireland was my mother and my father and my father's brother, who was my my uncle, my uncle Jack, who I referenced. and. Um, Uh, uh, and a grandmother who was also dead. Uh, So what I was doing really was revisiting them to an extent. And I found when I started to write, you know, like who really remembers what happened when they were three years old? And then I sort of went back to where we lived. Then you suddenly remember events and incidents either of a family nature or childhood adventures. Um,
1: Or visuals or smells or sounds. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it was extraordinary how things long forgotten suddenly they're there and they come back to you, and um, you actually relive them. And some of the things I re- relived were really fascinating and interesting, and it was really curious finding yourself back in that space, because I was very anxious that what I wrote was accurate, uh, and also where I wanted to p- portray things with humour, that the humour was real, because it was. Um, and then there were some events that were very painful. Um, and. Uh, I suppose, to some extent, writing about them uh, made me go back and revisit childhood memories and check whether my recollection of certain events were right. Um, And that led to different things happening, which was I I, uh, revisited, uh, following my mother's death, there was an inquest and I was only 14 years old at the time, Um, and I revisited all the documentation from the inqu- inquest to the National Archives and reread uh, uh, things that happened then. And I was astonished to discover how accurate my memory was of certain really? things. Um, I sort of wrote something about this before I went to the National Archive. And then the visit there was to check dates and also to make sure that what I'd written reflected what occurred. And to an extraordinary degree it did. There was very little to be corrected. But in the middle of all of these documents was a, um, a statement that I had uh, signed at the age of 14, really? which was fascinating and uh, somewhat… Did you remember signing it? Uh stressful treat. I knew there was a statement. I knew I'd signed it and I wasn't sure it was still traceable and I could find it. And a wonderful individual in the National Archives f- literally just fished out mm. this file for me upon asking. Um, I also discovered I had a long lost um, first cousin living in England who, who I never knew existed. Uh, and we, we connected up and uh, she helped me with some of my research. My parents, who originated from England, had both married uh, in England. I didn't know where in England they'd married. Um, it turned out they married in Southport, and uh, in a synagogue in Southport, and she was able to fish out for me uh, an authenticated copy of their marriage certificate. So it was sort of interesting. Uh, as a result of this, um, I discovered uh, some things in my background that I didn't know
1: about. Do you think writing that book then, Life is a Funny Business, at a time when there was so much other focus and content going on around your, your you know, in the aftermath of your resignation, did that give you a sense of uh, grounding maybe or comfort or did it, it, did it me distract?
0: Did, it helped me detach myself from uh, stressful events that were happening around me and to try and stand away from the emotional impact that I felt. Uh, as a consequence of what occurred. I mean, I had found myself in a very odd position uh, in politics in 2014, where I knew I had dealt reasonably with a variety of issues without going into them. I also knew I was repetitively telling the truth about issues, to which others had alternative narratives. It's quite odd to find yourself in a situation where you know you're consistently being truthful but you're consistently being accused of telling lies. It's like you enter some alternative universe. Um, It is a very strange thing. It may happen for a couple of days but to go through five months of this.
1: And is that the reason why you decided to write the book? Because you wanted to tell the truth?
0: Yes, that's really where where frenzy and betrayal came from. But life as a funny business was really to an extent stepping out of the adult maelstrom which I found myself and revisiting my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was interesting, and it was, I think, worth, worthwhile. If nothing else, my my two adult children found the book very interesting because they discovered things about our family that I'd long forgotten, and they wonderful. didn't know about. So, yeah, and a wonderful but,
1: family history document yeah. to have. But we got
0: yeah? uh, 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 the reaction to that book was uh, extraordinary because, again, people who I didn't know my late father knew suddenly appeared over the horizon and they were dropping me notes or they were ringing my former law firm to see could they make contact with me. Um, And it meant there was one or two people I hadn't seen since my childhood who appeared over the horizon and this was a good thing.
1: At that time, absolutely. And then moving on to, to Frenzy and Betrayal. Again, you decided to write the book because you wanted to set the record straight.
0: I decided to write the book because there was so much misinformation around and it was such a, a bizarre and extraordinary period where you had a whole range of Garda-related controversies and accusations being made of cover-ups and espionage and uh, people telling lies. Um, and there were so many people uh, within politics and within the media heavily invested in false narratives. Uh, I, I decided that there was a uh, uh, some obligation on, on uh, my, my writing a book from the inside, detailing the exact nature of the events that occurred, uh, observing it from within politics, looking at, fr- looking at it from the inside, uh, detailing what was occurring on the outside in the context of media, the public's reaction to it. And I tried to be terribly careful in the writing of that book. Uh, uh, as I had, I mean, I authenticated whatever needs to be authenticated for life is a funny business but in writing Frenzy and Betrayal there was far more uh, complexity to it there was far more documentation in existence records in existence so I tried to meticulously revisit everything even Uh, details of issues I knew intimately I deliberately insofar as I could revisited them from original documentation.
1: And had you kept your own notes during your political time?
0: I I, I had kept extensive documentation on which there's some notes written and and others typed up but I'd kept a very detailed record of events and the odd thing was because of my involvement of in, in two commissions of investigation and then later giving evidence to the disclosures tribunal and two separate court cases, there was a massive amount of contemporaneous documentation accumulated and retained for the purposes of those. But this... It's a very different type of book to uh, life is a funny business, though I tried within it uh, to bring in some lighter moments, and I tried to not totally focus on the issues of controversy but to give it some insight into the into how government works, the the disconnect between truth and politics, the disconnect between uh, truth and media narrative, uh, the sort of the symbiotic relationship between politicians and the media um and uh, take the reader into the complexity of what occurred and ultimately let them make their own judgments on both events that occurred and the manner in which which others conducted themselves.
1: And how long did it take you to write? Well,
0: I suppose uh, it it was written sporadically as uh, developments occurred. Um, Most of 2015, uh, I would have been writing it, but at the same time, I was a Sitting TD, I was um, engaged in politics. I was getting geared up to fight a general election. I was giving evidence to the uh, to the Fenley Commission during twenty fifteen, um, and uh, I then and then the O'Higgins Commission. So there was a lot, a lot going on. And then I when when life was a funny business was published in, and done with in September twenty seventeen. I went back to both. Reread everything written and to complete uh, this.
1: And had you always intended to have it published, or was it a case of maybe just writing it as a cathartic process?
0: No, I, I intended to have it published. I, I'm strange about publishing. I. I, I don't, as a habit, go to publishers in advance. Because I always wonder, this might be a great idea, but have you got the capacity to actually write it? Or the attention span? Or will other things get in the way? And I don't want to be on other people's schedules. I want to be on my own schedule. So uh, Life is a Funny Business was only furnished to pull bag when it was complete. Uh, uh, this book, Frenzy and Betrayal, I, I made contact um, with Marian Press were absolutely fantastic in the late spring of 2018.
1: And why did you choose that publisher?
0: Uh, because of their record in publishing uh, a variety of different materials, both as Irish Academic Press and Marion Press. It's the same, effectively, the same company. They they have published uh, a number of uh political um, manuscripts they've published uh, recently Eamon Gilmore had a book published by them um i, I felt that they were the right publishing company uh, for this particular for this particular book and they've been fantastic to deal with uh, the, the script that I would have given them in the in the spring of twenty eighteen was at a time when um court judgments were still awaited. Uh, when the um, disclosures tribunal, uh, Judge Charlton's tribunal, was still in sitting. Um, And it still, I knew, required a degree of editing, but I wanted to get some feedback as to whether they had an interest in publishing the manuscript. And um, they were hugely supportive, and uh, effectively the manuscript uh, had to again be left aside as different events occurred. And uh, it was substantially complete by the end of November 2018. But I still had to wait for Supreme Court judgments to be delivered in February of 2019. So the final, the final uh, uh, full stop was put at the end of a sentence the beginning of April 2019. So they've done an extraordinary job in publishing it extremely quickly.
1: Have you read any reviews of the book? Oh,
0: there's been all sorts of reviews of the book and, uh, the, you know, the, uh, I, uh, have, there's nothing that anyone has said that surprised me. Some people miss the point of the book. Some have been very generous in the reviews they've written. Others are uh, some journalists or columnists who are uh, uh, irrevocably wedded to false narratives. Uh, So one uh, review was simply personally abusive of me and, you know, if that gives the author of that review some personal satisfaction or a psychological release, uh, you know, fair enough.
1: And I think, you know, uh, you you sort of said at one point there's nothing to indicate now that either within the world of Irish politics or journalism that any lessons have been learned. Do you still think that?
0: Um, That's become increasingly clear in looking at the flavour of some of the reviews and, and in fairness that doesn't apply to all of them. Uh, in the context of those who have written in the past uh, about the controversies I was involved in and who were, um, uh, who, who in their writings got issues of fact wrong and allegations incorrect, Um, Clearly, from what I've seen written by those individuals, uh, they're incapable even when they're given the detailed material, even when they know some of what they wrote in those days to be incorrect. Simply not because of anything I've said, because of the outcome of commissions of investigations. Um, uh, Some people seem to be incapable of um, just reassessing Mm -hmm. issues. Um, And I think that's unfortunate because uh, I think the media performs a hugely important function with uh, some fantastic journalists in Ireland, there's fantastic journalists outside Ireland. I'm not someone who believes in the, the Trump perspective on life that, uh, you know, uh, newspapers or the media or journalists are enemies of the people. Journalists have a hugely important role to play, but it's important when they're playing that role uh, before they make allegations against individuals that they, insofar as they can, check accuracy. And I think it's also important they don't get carried away with the entertainment value of an allegation. Uh, and it's become so invested in it that they're unca- incapable of recognising that although they may have written about it in the past, it's actually now time to acknowledge it wasn't true.
1: And in terms of your own writing at the moment, are you working on anything?
0: Well, I love writing uh, and when it came to... Uh, in each book you write, there's there's issues about, around structure. How are you going to present material? How are you going to ensure that you, uh, if it's a legal textbook? It's absolutely accurate, but it's set out in a way that makes it readable and doesn't put the reader to sleep. If it's a <laughs> if it's a novel, you know how do you range your story? How do you present your characters? What level of detail do you put in? what are the sequencing of events. Uh, when it but came, you have
1: done it before when you wrote Laura. Yeah, so.
0: so when it came to Frenzy and Betrayal there was a huge issue around structure because the events that occurred in 2014 uh, there was a multiplicity of things that happened within a very short period of time which you had to unravel because uh, it was unfair to a reader to expect the reader to get into a scrambled egg version of these events. So there was interesting issues around structure and how you also at the same time give a flavour of how government works and relationships work in government and relationships work between politicians and the media. So so that's always an interesting challenge and I leave it to readers to judge on Frenzy and Betrayal, whether uh, that works or not. But as far as I'm concerned, Frenzy and Betrayal is the last book I'm going to write about Irish politics. Uh, I've no wish to get back into that. And um, do you miss politics? Oh, I miss the opportunity it gives to address issues that need to be addressed. Uh, I mean, I had an enormous reforming agenda as Minister for Justice, and in my years preceding being being a minister, um, I was involved in preparing a huge amount of legislation. What always interested me in politics was how you can address issues that are being ignored, how you can make people's lives better, how you can get rid of laws or uh, administrative bureaucratic uh, procedures that are actually uh, unnecessary and burdensome and making, uh, creating difficulties for people in their lives. So I miss the opportunity to affect change. Um, I got through about one half of my reform agenda before I was forced to resign. Uh, some of that agenda was continued by the Department of Justice and uh, the successive ministers have occupied it since, but some of it has either been abandoned or put on the long finger. Uh, I would still like the opportunity to see it implemented and I see issues today that I believe the government are dealing with incorrectly uh, that are of concern to me but I recognise I'm outside politics there's um, little of anything I can do about it other than sound off and I've certainly and I've always known this and it isn't a great discovery if you're outside Leinster House and if you're uh, if you decide to put pen to paper and write an article or get agitated and go on radio and talk about an issue, it rarely has any impact of any nature other than you're engaging in some sort of public personal psychotherapy. Uh, So so I'm a little cynical of the value of simply sounding off. I've always been someone who's preferred action to words, uh, even though I seem to write a lot. But (laughs) uh, if I'm writing as in the family law book, it was with a purpose. It was to set an agenda and gain support for that agenda to implement reform.
1: So no more books about politics, but fiction could be on the horizon. Well, I have
0: two or three, in fact, three different projects that I'm playing around with at the moment. And I uh, I don't know yet which one I'm going to travel with. Um, uh, they're all in the realm of fiction. Uh, one of them would be what I describe as high political futuristic fiction. Um But I, I'd, again, it comes back to my perception of these things. When I start off, I never know, you know, will I be able to take this somewhere worthwhile? Um, have I the capacity to write this particular story? Um, what characters are you going to build around it? Uh, how interesting will it be for a reader? Um, so, with uh, frenzy and trail so recently out of the way, um, I'm having a little bit of time out. I have notes on these other projects that I made uh, over the Christmas period, and. Um, We'll see in the summer months. Can I revisit them?
1: Well, we look forward to seeing it, whatever it might be. Alan Shatter, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books. And you'll find Alan's book, Frenzy and Betrayal, in your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books IRE. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breida Brown. Until next time, keep reading.
0: Inside Books is a unique media production.